We have a lot to pray about, amen? Continue to keep Bud in your prayers. Continue to keep our brothers and sisters in Russia in your prayers. And uh, we are so blessed to be able to do this tonight, amen? So if you would, I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 6. That's toward the second half of your Bible. It'll be on the screen And as you're turning there, I'll remind you where we've been. We are looking at the core practices. And our first core practice with that little cross there is, of course, what? To follow Jesus. That is like the easiest Sunday school answer you could ever do. And it sounds like this. We commit to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus in our everyday lives. That's a paraphrase of the late, great Dallas Willard. And it's a way that Toby introduced us of the apprenticeship to Jesus. And there is no other life you have to live but the one you're living right now in your everyday life. That's the life that God is transforming and calling you to be with, learn from, and live like Jesus. That's core practice number one. Core practice number two is to love neighbor. It's the other side of the same coin. To love God, follow Jesus, will lead and express itself into love of neighbor. And so that core practice of the neighborhood church is that we commit to love others as ourselves, regardless of race, background, ethnicity, orientation, or status, or any other qualifier, any other adjective. One thing that we can all agree on is when we see a person in front of you, it's a person to be loved. Not an other or enemy to be feared or hated. Because in our church, we love to say how Jesus has rezoned our neighborhood. As soon as we say they are unlovable, they are not my neighbor, Jesus takes that boundary marker and says, oh yeah? And he just scoops it up long enough to where now these people, enemy, other, are a neighbor to be loved. That's core practice number two. Jason walked us through core practice number three last week. And that is to grow disciples, disciples that are grown like our potted plants there. And what we mean by that is we commit to invite people into a relationship with Jesus by baptizing them, initiating them, teaching them, and then sending them on mission. That's great commission stuff. That's to invite them not just to church, but into life itself with Jesus. And then Tonight, in just a moment, we'll be looking at our fourth core practice, which is to create space. And as we turn to Luke chapter 6, I'll remind you that we use the word practice because our faith is not just something to be believed, it's meant to be lived. Our neighbors can't see our theology unless it influences and impacts our behavior. Our beliefs inform our behavior. And these are not just values or thoughts or beliefs, although those are so vitally important. We as a church say, if we can agree that Jesus is Lord and we can follow him and find ourselves in his story... Here's how we're committed to live that out. And tonight we're going to talk about our core practice number four. But let's turn to Luke chapter six and see a little bit of a night and day in the life of Jesus. I'm going to be beginning in verse 12. And tonight I'm reading the NRSV because why not? Y'all ready? Luke six, verse 12. 
Jesus has been doing a lot of healing. He's been meeting a lot of uh, controversy. And so in those days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Pause there real quick. How many, did, how many disciples did Jesus have? We don't know a number, but true or false, it was more than 12. True. There was loads of them. People that he had been healed, people that had heard good news. Jesus had demonstrated good news of the reign of God. And they said, I want in on this. I ain't got much going on here. So they left what they had and they began to follow him. Guess what? To live like Jesus, to be with Jesus, to learn how to go and do likewise. And so from these, he chooses 12. That's significant. We'll talk about it later. And he also named them what? Apostles. Apostle is a word that means a sent one. They're designated emissaries or ambassadors. And later, Paul will be an apostle to the nations. And even though he didn't follow Jesus these days, an apostle is one who has seen and encountered the risen Jesus, and they're designated, sent to go and declare that Jesus is Lord and he's raised and reigning. And so Jesus collects from the mass of followers these 12 to be the designated ones sent out to bear good news of Jesus, our King. So what are their names? If you asked this pastor to name all 12 on the cuff like five minutes ago, I would have struggled. And we'll talk about these interesting group of men later. But for now, let's rejoin in verse 14. Simon, whom he named Peter. You can read about that in Matthew. And his brother, Andrew. And James and John. And Philip and Bartholomew. And Matthew and Thomas. And James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot. And Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Spoiler alert there. Now verse 17. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Can we pause real fast? The gospel is a word for the good news. What is the good news? In one word, what? Jesus. In many words, it's the good news that Jesus is the reigning Lord of heaven and earth through his life, death, and resurrection. And that all peoples, was there a lot of peoples from all over there, are invited into his gracious reign to say that he is Lord and be freed from sin, death, and evil. And they go and live with him and like him now and forever. That's good news. And it's so much bigger than pray a prayer, close your eyes, now you won't go to hell, have a great life. 
It's a story, a movement, the reign of God in and around the person of Jesus. And it's something that is both declared and demonstrated. Jesus didn't just teach, he healed. He didn't just say that God has offered you life, he gives them life. He didn't just say, come and follow me and quit smoking and drinking and being a fool. He showed them a way of real life with a capital L. The good news is something declared and demonstrated. That's what's happening here. So much so, finally, in verse 19, and all in the crowd were trying to touch him, trying to get in on this. Why? For power came out from him and healed all of them. My first full-time ministry position, I loved it. I loved the church, I loved the people, and I loved the work. I was blessed to kind of just get to do whatever. I started as a worship leader that became overseer of groups and starting home groups. And then I had gone through a Celebrate Recovery, so they let me start a Celebrate Recovery. Then I started to preach more than I sang, so they let me preach with the youth and go on ski trips. I loved that part of the job. And I got to kind of just do this or that and the other. And I loved the people and I loved the work and I still do to this day. They ordained me. They sent me out. And I love this people and that place. But it was around that time of my first full-time job that I started reading about pastoral ministry from guys like the late, great Eugene Peterson, who wrote, most famously, a translation called The Message. Have you heard of The Message? He translated the Bible as the message, but his books are like real dense and earthy and poetic and, and, and they're just powerful. And he writes so clearly and beautifully about the pastoral vocation. I started reading his famous books about being a pastor. And then I started reading people like Henry Nouwen, who was a great teacher of the spiritual life and spiritual disciplines. So then I was reading about how to be a pastor and I was reading about the spiritual life and so I started doing these things. And one of the things I started doing was saying, I'm gonna be gone on Thursday all day. I'm going to the camp site south of Dallas and I'm just gonna spend a whole day. And they said, what are you doing? Are you like trying to plan an event or do this? I said, no, I'm gonna go sit Okay, so what? Are you meeting with somebody? No, I'm, I'm going to try to meet with Jesus. And they said, okay. Like, and I said, I'm going to pray and read and just kind of disengage for a whole day. And they said, cool. You're going to have to take a personal day for that. And I thought, um, okay. Wish I would have done that on my day off. But I did. And then, because I was reading these guys, Eugene Peterson kept talking about how pastoring ain't preaching explicitly. It's about being amongst the people. And so I would go out to schools. I would go out to people's workplaces. I would go out to lunch and coffee. And then I would come back in and my supervisor would say, where have you been for the last four hours? I would tell him I was here, there, and everywhere. And he would say, dude, people are wondering and asking, you need to be in the office. It's about optics. 
And so the more personal days I took and the more I felt compelled to be in my office doing ministry work, because I was young and even dumber and crazier than I am now, I finally started to say, wait, isn't this actually my work? Isn't creating space to be with Jesus and creating space to be with people actually my work? I love these people. I learned so much. But it was this tension point where I realized that we live in a culture that not only doesn't value being more than doing, we've created whole ministry structures that don't value being over or in tandem with doing. We love to follow Jesus with the declaring and the demonstrating, the serving and the giving and the loving and the stuff. But do we follow the same rhythms of Jesus evidenced in Luke 6, Luke 5, Luke 4? Are we willing to follow Jesus to lonely places to disengage, to recharge, refuel in silence and quiet? Are we able to follow Jesus through creating space? Creating space in our church looks like this. We commit to make time for God and others for transformational relationships to grow. You see this cup here with water being poured in. I forgot my pitcher. I forgot my cup. I forgot my plate because I grabbed my base. But you've seen this if you've been around the neighborhood church for, for the last few years. And I want you to imagine that I'm holding a pitcher filled with water. And it represents all the goodness of God and the blessings he wants to give to you. The power he wants to bestow on you. The way in which you can love and live and get through your day. And then I want you to imagine that right here is a cup. And you're the cup. And I want you to imagine being filled. And the thing about being a cup is, if you go to Chili's and say, can I get a refill? If you start wiggling around that cup while the server is sitting there ready to refill you, they're going to get pretty mad and dump it on your head. The thing about a cup getting a refill is that it needs to be set down. And so to create space is to be a cup that is set down and is allowed and allowing itself to be acted upon, to be filled. And so what happens is that this pitcher is filled and it never goes empty. And so all that God has and wants to give fills you and forms you. And the thing is that if you sit there with him more and more, he's going to keep doing this. And so what happens is it begins to fill to overflow as Paul prays in Ephesians 3. And what happens is it spills out to the third thing I want you to imagine, and that is a plate. And what happens when the plate is set down and the cup is sat still and the pitcher fills it to the brim and overflow? The plate represents the people in your life and the spheres in which you walk that are blessed vicariously through the one who is blessed by God also. That to love and serve like Jesus 
is to love and serve out of the overflow of your life as a vessel that is set down for five minutes, five seconds, five months, 50 minutes, however long it takes, set down long enough to be with God, to receive from God, and that out of the overflow, you might be a blessing to others. This is what we mean. It roots you, sets you in the ground, and allows you to be acted upon. But this is two-directional. Not only, you noticed in the core practice, is it about creating space for God, it's also about creating space with others. Because how many of your best friends and the people you hold dear, how many of them have you only known for a day or two? You probably got history. We know this. It takes time. It takes a lot of sitting and talking and communicating. This core practice is two-directional. And the idea and why it's so countercultural is that it's hard to create space. We don't like to create space. And in weeks like this week, where for some of us, not all of us, but for some of us had space imposed upon us because we couldn't drive to our workplaces or our kids couldn't go to school, space doesn't just have to be created or made or edged out in your schedule. It also has to be embraced. Just because you got some time off doesn't mean you're engaging with God and others. Just because you're home with your kids doesn't mean you're present to them. And so space is a practice because we need to keep working on it. Space is a practice because we'll never be perfect. But we can follow Jesus' rhythm to edge out just a little bit of margin so that we might not just create it, but embrace it and allow ourselves to sit with God, to sit with others, so that transformational relationships can grow. Briefly, I'll remind you of a quote from Dr. Richard Swenson, who wrote a book called Margin. And in this quote, you'll notice there's a notebook paper. And when I was making these slides, Emma said, that background doesn't match. And I said, Emma, what's on the other side of the pink line? And she goes, oh, because we're talking about margin. Margin, he says, is defined as space between your current situation or performance and your limits. Margin is a buffer or gap, a place of reserve for reflecting, relating, recharging your batteries and focusing on the things that matter most. So when there's a lack of margin in your life, you have a little margin for anything or anyone who is not already in your schedule. If anything out of the ordinary happens or a special opportunity presents itself, you have little capacity to respond to it. Watch this. If God wants to drop a miracle in your life, you do not have room to receive it. I submit to you that a lack of margin is not simply because we're too busy. I think that's a part of it, but many of us have lots of time. Again, it comes back to the importance not just to create it, but to embrace it. 
Some of us, like me, have gone about telling all you how I've been in a funk. I feel drained. And we just look back at the last two, three years, and I want you to know it's okay. Of course you are. So it's not just that you're too busy. A lot of it is because you're too drained. You're sapped. And so even if God dropped a miracle into your life, you may have room on the schedule to receive it, but you don't have room in your heart to receive it because you're so drained, so depleted, so isolated, so lonely that your eyes aren't lifted up high enough to recognize what God is doing in our midst. A lack of margin is not just on the schedule. It can also be in our heart. Our culture lacks margin financially that if somebody had a need, many of us struggle to meet it. You know that 63% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. This blew my mind. Almost half, making 100,000 or more, live paycheck to paycheck also. That ain't a lot of margin. So when churches ask to give, and you hear the word 10%, you say 10%? Of course, that's the Old Testament principle of the tithe. As your pastor, I would encourage you, if 10% sounds shocking and horrifying, that's okay. Start with 0.5%. Start with 1%. Start with one less latte. And see what God can do to develop a little bit of margin to where when your friend needs a hand up or a hand out, you're able to meet that with just a shade more margin. If 10% to the church sounds horrifying, what would 50 bucks for somebody that needs it this month in your circle or life, even if it doesn't ever touch the church, what kind of margin would that do? We have no margin relationally. I looked up one study and I looked at the date and it was from 2018. I tried to look for a newer one and guess what? The percentages of loneliness shot up dramatically thanks to the pandemic. We have 36% of Americans experiencing serious loneliness. 61% of people ages 18 to 25 reported feeling lonely frequently or almost all the time or all the time. Who would have guessed that the youngest demographic that felt the loneliness would be these 18 to 25. Maybe there's a lack of margin because we're engaged perpetually on this and not with the person or people in front of us. This is so difficult to talk about, so countercultural, but I submit to you that it is the most vital thing needed of you because space is the soil for growth. We sit with God and allow ourselves to be acted upon. And let me tell you as a pastor, that's the hardest thing. It's hard for me, like Psalm 23, where he makes me lie down in green pastures. It was easier when I had a job with an office and I could go punch the clock and look busy. It's harder when I'm at home or on the road, but space is the soil for growth. 
We sit with God. We allow ourselves to be acted upon. We also sit with others and allow those relationships to develop. The TNC mantra for this is we do what we can and let God do what we can't. We want God to download growth into our life in mainframe. Is mainframe a thing? What am I talking about? We want God to download patience. Somebody sent me a tweet last week, and it says when we pray for a cake, sometimes God gives us the eggs, flour, sugar, and butter. We do what we can, which is to create a little bit of space to sit down, to be present to the person in front of you, to be present to God's presence for five seconds, five minutes throughout our day, and we let God do what we can't, which is form us, shape us, love us. But we can set ourselves down. Back to the text that I talked through earlier, briefly. I'll say it this way, we follow, I'll skip that one just for time's sake. Yeah, we follow Jesus's movement from mountain to meadow. Following Jesus's movement gives us permission to create space and shows us how vital it is. Did you notice that we read two halves? The first is that Jesus created space. He goes to the mountain for prayer. And then he moves his way back down from that space, out of that space, to go and declare and demonstrate the good news. We follow Jesus' movement from mountain to meadow. One of the ways our friend J.R. Briggs says is it's formation for mission. I want to remind you that this statement is not a roller coaster of your Baptist youth group that I grew up with. How many of you went to church camp and you rededicated your life again on Wednesday and just to make sure you did it on Thursday too and you cried and you're never going to do that sin again, God, for real this time, for real. And then you come back down and you say, it was a mountaintop experience. But anyway, um, I'm going to go get high real quick on Friday. I mean, this is a roller coaster of emotions and what Jesus is inviting us to is not that. He's inviting you to the ordinariness of the level plane to follow him, to sit with him, to eat with him. We have these 12 disciples and we think it's just um, this crazy full tilt ministry and so much of it was sat around a campfire or sat around a table with sinners. Space, time, formation for mission. It's not a roller coaster, it's a healthy rhythm of refilling. I'm at the end of my rope, notice it, then withdraw. It's interesting in Luke chapter 6, this is the only all-night vigil recorded in the New Testament. I want to remind you of Jesus' regular rhythm, and if you're taking notes, write these verses down. Luke 4, 40 to 44. Luke 4, 40 to 44. Then Luke 5, 16 to 17. In both spaces, Luke gives us a glimpse of Jesus' rhythm. He regularly withdrew to lonely places to pray. You're discipling others. People have discipled you. They probably tell you, read the word and pray. Yes, amen, hallelujah. How many of you say, oh, also, to be a disciple of Jesus, 
you better regularly withdraw to lonely places to pray. How many of us heard that growing up in our faith formation? Yet Jesus now in three chapters, four, five, and six, models for us a withdrawal to recharge, refill, so that he might more fully engage with the world around him. There is no get spiritual quick schemes. We grow like a mustard seed in the kingdom of God through the incremental two-directional way of being present to God, present to others, following Jesus' movement to whatever quiet you can carve out in your day, your week, and however you can do that as you engage with others. When I left my first ministry job, I wound up with a community that would become the neighborhood church. And as we were kind of forming and reforming, I was handed a job description, and that job description looked like this. A day of solitude, excuse me, an hour of solitude and silence and space a day, a day of solitude a month, and a retreat or weekend of solitude a year. So no more personal days, no more get your butt in the office. It was the expectation that to live the Jesus way in community is to show us an hour of solitude a day, a day of solitude a month, and a retreat a year. And the reason we have elders is because last year before Jason and Toby were even like officially installed, they said, when was the last time you did a retreat? Uh, Well, the pandemic and yeah, it's time you go to a retreat. And um, it's not lost to me that I went to a silent retreat and I tried not to like take this personally, how they all thought it was a great idea for me, but that's what we did. We're to encourage each other to say, it's okay, take a breath, get away for a minute, but don't just create it, engage it. It's incremental. Jesus gave himself fully because he was fully connected to God and he was able to be fully connected to the people in front of him. As we wind down, let me just give you the why and the how we create space. Why do we create space? I believe in Luke chapter 6, Jesus created space and had an all-night vigil. Because do you dare believe that Jesus needed to, to discern which 12 to call? Would you let yourself believe the one who is fully God was also fully man? That Luke also told us as a young one grew in wisdom and stature, which means that there were still things that Jesus needed to learn and discern. Does that blow your mind or what? I think Luke is very intentional here. And if you go back to Luke 4 and Luke 5, you see that Jesus enters back down from the proverbial mountain with a fresh set of what comes next. Let's pause on this screen. We'll come back to it. Because he discerned, I think, which 12. Who are these ordinary, obscure, and imperfect disciples? We have four fishermen mentioned here. That first group, Peter, who's Simon, Andrew, their brothers, and then James and John, brothers. Then, who else? We have... um, these blue-collar, uneducated, ordinary dudes. Then we have Philip 
and Thomas, who is also called Bartholomew in places. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Bartholomew is Nathaniel. See, I'm, I told you I'd fail this quiz. Look in that second group. We have Philip and Thomas. Both of those dudes were incredulous about Jesus in the Gospel of John. That's kind of all we get from them. We don't get much about Bartholomew. And then in Matthew chapter 9, of course, in Matthew's book, we get a little bit from him. Matthew lived an incredulous life. Why would Jesus call him? Then we have this other group. We have James. We don't hear a lot about him. Simon the Zealot, we don't hear a lot, but we know that the Zealot is a political extremist who would have hated Matthew. And then we have Judas, also called Thaddeus. He probably went by Thad more because Judas Iscariot, his other brother, got a bad name because, as Luke reminds us, he's the traitor. Could you think, after an all-night prayer vigil, do you think that we could have gotten somebody better than a denier in Peter, a violent person in Peter and Simon, a traitor in Judas, and then a bunch of obscure people, Simon and Matthew, that probably didn't like each other for the first few months. Could you imagine a more motley crew? They're diverse-ish. We know that Jesus had women that supported him on his, on his mission and ministry. And they're diverse-ish because there's a lot of the same names. <laughs> but we need to see here that Jesus was not afraid to invite people like you and me who are mixed bags. So we need to embrace the incremental everydayness of our journey with Jesus and others. They didn't get it perfectly. I think Peter did follow Jesus' rhythm. We see him later in Acts 10, creating space on a rooftop. And his encounter with the living God changed the church. If you want to know more, look at our Acts series in Acts chapter 10. It's wild. But they did it incrementally, which is why I love this quote from Wendell Berry. It's not a roller coaster, it's a rhythm. He says, we must grow more like a tree, not like a fire. We must learn to grow like a tree, not like a fire. These men were imperfect. They were obscure. We don't have a lot of their greatest hits. Not all of them wrote books. And so Jesus went and discerned and came down and said, yeah, these. Why 12? Because 12 would be a representation of a renewed Israel. Moses went up on the mountain at night. And he came down with a distillation of the law called the Ten Commandments. And then he stood out in front of a people and in some short order, he's going to say, we're going to divvy up into 12 tribes. Let's go out and be a blessing to the world. Jesus goes up to the mountain at night. He comes down and later in Luke 6, he's going to teach them a distillation of the law. And then he's going to look at these 12 and say, you guys are going to be my sent ones to lead the way. Let's go bless the world. Jesus is doing Moses stuff. After he withdrew to the mountain and stepped back to the meadow. Now, back to why. 
Why do we create space? First, to discern. Two, to relax. How many of you ever give yourself permission to relax? How about me? You create space to feel. For so long during the trials of planting this church, I didn't give my permission to feel emotionally the toll that it was taking until I would get away for a minute. To listen, not just talk to God and others. To recharge like I think Jesus did. To be in a world that values earning and validating our existence. Remember, it was God's idea for Sabbath. You have one day where you do no work so that you might remember who's really at work. Who holds it all together. And it reminds you one day a week that you aren't the center of the universe. To be is to detox from this culture. Do you remember grace? The whole crux of the good news is that there's no work to earn what's already been given in Jesus. To be, give yourself permission. Why? To be formed, as we've been talking about. To be quiet in our noisy world. To be loved, like we sang about. To let go and feel the love of God. Why else would you? Maybe you can fill in your own reasons. Why do we create space? Some of you might say, so I just don't lose my ever-loving mind. You have permission to follow Jesus in this rhythm. Finally, how? How might we create space? Not just to know or check it off in a Bible reading plan, but to really immerse yourself, saturate yourself in the story of Scripture. A good place to start, you can find on our website, the Sermons and Resources page. We have Bible reading guides for the Gospels to see what's up with Jesus if you're new to this whole thing. Another Bible reading plan is the Psalms. The Psalms cover the range of human emotion and teach us how to pray. Another way we create space is silence. It is so shocking to me how little is made of silence in the evangelical culture when for the first 2,000 years of Christianity, every book on spirituality was rooted or orbiting around the practice of contemplation, which is to sit, to be still, in quiet, in aloneness, the height of spiritual formation was to be still and silent. And now we just have devotional after devotional after devotional, which are great, but we've lost the great tried and true tradition of silence. Mother Teresa says the fruit of silence is prayer. The fruit of prayer is faith. The fruit of faith is love. And the fruit of love is service. And the fruit of service ultimately is peace. So we have silence and then we also have prayer that we're speaking, asking. Then we have play. How many of you consider play as part of creating space? This week I watched the girls that were so busy in the front yard playing in the rain. It wasn't snow, it was rain. They were out there all day and we'd bring them in and shove them under an electric blanket and then send them back out. They were so busy and they were accomplishing nothing. But they were busy doing it. I take that back. One thing they did accomplish and we had to tell them to stop. We looked out and our neighbors were eating ice that they had drizzled some juice on. 
They had left out on the ground these like popsicles and snow cones, and they were feeding our neighbors dirt snow with juice on it. And we said, no more snow cones, please. I don't want them to call. They were feeding our neighbors dirty snow with juice. That was all they accomplished. The rest of it, they were just fully present, fully alive. It's melted, it's gone, but they have a memory. They created that space. Hospitality, this is something we're out of practice on, and I want to invite you to look around this room and those who aren't here. This place can be for you, your people. It takes time. It takes a two-way street of creating space with one another, but oh, my prayer is that This would be your people in the good times and bad to celebrate. Finally, healthy disengaging. How do we know it's healthy? Well, how do you feel after? It's the difference between numbing out and healthily disengaging. How many of you have plugged in your phone at night? You wake up, it's got 8%. Why? Because it wasn't connected to the source. It wasn't plugged in to the wall. Healthy disengaging. What does that look like for you? So now we end with these invitations. How are you going to create space this week to sit with Jesus in stillness and quiet, to use a prayer guide like this QR code that we've talked about so often, this app that you can listen to for 10 minutes of space on your commute, 10 minutes of space in your shower, 10 minutes on the headphones in between while you're doing dishes. Take one of these scripture guides Sit with someone else. Really be present with someone and give yourself to this life-giving hobby. And I'm gonna invite you, as I said at the very beginning, to commit to pray each day this week for our partners in Russia. Not just to create space to be with God, but to be present to people that God has placed around. Tonight's benediction is by our good friend Aubrey Smith. May God bless us with faith in his abundance and in his ability to multiply our resources with his creative power. May we offer up to God our time, space, and energy with confidence, entrusting our lives to be used by him to bless others. May we stand firm against the self-importance and pride that being busy provides. And may we resist the lie of scarcity that causes us to withhold time, love, and ourselves from God and our neighbor. May we grow in the quiet and the unseen places with God, allowing his spirit to transform us in his presence. May the Lord Jesus enable us to show his generous hospitality to others at our tables, in our homes, and in our hearts. Go in peace.